At this cycle of our political life, it'd be appropriate for me this morning to talk about where we are with Christian, civic, and historically civic responsibilities that we have in the election coming up. I'm not going to do that because I know Pastor Mac has already done that and is going to keep doing that. What I want to talk to you about this morning is some of the underlying issues going on in the nation, some of which involves um, some racial tension that we haven't had in years that we're having now, displayed sometimes violence, sometimes not. So there's some background to that, that that I want to kind of address. And in doing that, let me just talk about the nation for a minute. Because America, we do have a form of government under our form of government that we have. And we're one of 193 nations. At the UN this year, there's 193 nations. So every nation has a government. We have our form of government. We wrote our constitution in 1787. Now, we've had one constitution. But I want you to see how unusual that is. Look at other nations and look at how frequently... They changed constitutions. Look at how many constitutions they've had in the same period of time we've had one. As you look at these nations, their friends, their allies, their enemies, their opponents. But notice, with all nations, how frequently they change forms of government, styles of government, and governing documents. It's very common to have the kind of instability and turmoil that you see here. So when you look at that, you say, well, what, what's the average length of a, of a constitution for the world? The answer is 17 years. We've had ours for 233 years. We are by far the most, by far the most stable nation in the world. We've had one constitution in 233 years. Every year we have a, a, a birthday on, on Constitution Day, September 17th, we set another world's record. No one's come close to that at all. Most nations average a violent revolution every generation and they average a new constitution every 17 years. We don't. We're very unique in that. Same way, when you look at what we have in America with regard to creativity, America represents 4% of the world's population. But we have produced more medical technology, more cures, more scientific inventions, more discoveries, more technology, more symphonies, more plays, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Not so. Our 4% has produced more than the entire rest of the world. Just as we are accustomed to stability, and we just assume stability is natural, it's not. We're accustomed to our creativity, and we assume that's natural for the rest of the world. It's not. Um, I, I, I've got two kids active duty military. I speak at a lot of military bases, including all over the world. So I was in Germany, number of military bases there America has. And while I was in Germany, as a country boy from Texas, I got to stay at some five-star hotels in Germany, which is pretty cool. Old world elegance and castles and all the stuff they have. And it would have been even a better stay if they would have had internet at those five-star hotels. <laughs> and I tell you, even Motel 6 in America has internet. And five-star hotels in Europe that don't. See, we just take what we have and assume it's natural, normal. It's not. The same with our productivity. Our 4% of the world's population produces 25% of the world's wealth. We are so prosperous we don't recognize it. According to the Census Bureau, if you live below the poverty level in America, and we don't want anybody living below the poverty level, but if you do, if you live below the poverty level in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. So if you're worst off in America, you're still higher than... Unbelievable. See, we don't recognize the blessings we often have. Those that came to America in our early years who saw this, they thought it was remarkable even then. 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville came here from France. He ends up writing the famous book, Democracy in America. He said, what the Americans have is exceptional. I don't think any other nation would be able to do what they've done. That's where we get the term American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is not a term of arrogance or brag that, look what we've done. We're so different. Well, we are different, but we're statistically different. This is a matter of we're the exception, not the rule. Not having uh, a revolution every generation is an exception. Well, we're the exception, not the rule. Not having a new constitution every 17 years, we're the exception. Having the prosperity, having the stability, this is exceptional. So that's a statement of fact, not of arrogance. It's interesting to say, all right, we're really different. Who's responsible for that? And this is where historically, if you look in the textbooks and as Pastor Mac mentioned, we do a lot of history work in you know, Texas and California and uh, it's, it's been Oklahoma and it's been Kentucky and Georgia and all these different states. We do all this, this history work on standards there. 
And a lot of that's because we own 120,000 documents from before 1812. We literally have thousands of documents from every aspect of American history. We have thousands and thousands of documents from after 1812, every era of American history. So we can go back to original documents. And invariably, if you look in the textbooks on who's responsible for forming any nation, you'll go to those who are politically active. You'll, you'll see George Washington, for example. Good choice, because he had a lot to do with the foundations of America. You also have folks like John Hancock. You have folks like John Adams, et cetera. And so we invariably look at the political stuff and say, this is, this is where we got our great documents, et cetera. It's interesting to me that back in 1816, a young historian named Hezekiah Niles contacted John Adams, who was then an old man. And he said, I'm writing a book on the history of America. He said, now we, the younger generation, have really enjoyed what we have in America because already we were exceptional. And he said, but you were there at the beginning. You were there at the start. You were part of this. As an eyewitness, as, a, as an active participant, who do you think is responsible for all the stuff we enjoy today? And when we look at American independence, America is a separate nation. Who's responsible? So John Adams, who was there all the way through, he said, well, he said, right up top, I would put the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And, of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Ooh, don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. And you got the Reverend Charles Chauncey. Adam starts going through enlisted preachers. Now, we might know who Whitfield is today, but the chances that we know anything about Cooper, Mayhew, or Chauncey, slim to none. And yet, the guys who were there said these are the guys responsible. See, we don't talk about them today. We don't talk about people like Richard Allen or Absalom Jones. We don't talk about John Morant or Lemuel Haynes. We have not a clue who Harry Hoosier is. We don't talk about all the preachers in the American founding, black or white. As a matter of fact, let me just take Harry Hoosier for a minute. Harry Hoosier, interesting individual. Harry Hoosier preached in the Great Awakening along with Francis Asbury. Francis Asbury is very well known. Uh, he spent 300,000 miles on horseback preaching the gospel. That's 12 times around the world on horseback, having never left America. He preached the gospel everywhere. And he and, and Harry Hoosier worked together in that. And Francis Asbury said, Harry Hoosier draws larger crowds than I do. Well, we hear a lot about Asbury and, and his crowds. He says Harry draws larger crowds. And it's interesting Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration, one of the great founding fathers, he said, I've heard Harry preach. He's the best orator I've ever heard. Benjamin, you've heard Patrick Henry and all that. Yeah, but Harry's the best orator I've ever heard. Now, interestingly, Harry really worked with blue-collar Americans. I mean, he, he was the guy with the frontiersmen and the woodsmen and the explorers and others. And these blue-collar rough-and-tumble guys, uh, as they would come to Christ, they would get converted. Their lifestyle would change. Their language would change. Their behavior would change, etc. And so Harry did so much work with blue-collar Americans. And what happened was Harry preached on the east coast of the United States over in eastern United States. But as America over years grew west, we, we started growing toward the west, a lot of those guys, those blue-collar guys, went west with the growth of America because they're frontier guys and they're woodsmen and they're, they're mountain guys, mountain men. And so it's interesting that as those frontier guys moved west, when they got over into the furthest west part of the United States in the early 1800s, it was the Indiana Territory. And people would look at these guys and say, why are they so different from everybody else? And the answer was, they're a bunch of Hoosiers. Well, I wonder how many people who live in Indiana know they were named after black evangelists. Probably not very many. Now, it would seem like that if you had a state named after you, you might mention that in some history book somewhere. Probably most of us never heard that story. See, in the same way, we hear a little about someone like John Morant. Uh, John Morant, when he was about 13 years old, he was, uh, he was living in South Carolina. And in his own writings, he talks about a dramatic conversion experience. George Whitfield led him to Christ, which is pretty remarkable, the great evangelist. And so when he got led to Christ, it was a radical transformation for this 13-year-old. His life changed. Everything changed about him. And it changed so much that his family said, you're out of the house. You're gone. So they kicked him out. They had wanted nothing to do with him. So he's been thrown outside. He took his Bible with him. And as he's wandering around disconsolate in the woods, he ended up meeting a Cherokee brave. And over the next 10 weeks, they became really close friends. They stayed in the woods, hunted together, fished together, lived together. And at the end of that 10 weeks, the Cherokee brave said, well, I've got to go back to my village. You don't have anywhere to go. Why don't you come with me? And John said, no, no. He said, I know the law of the Cherokees. The law of Cherokees is any outsiders to be killed on the spot. And the brave said, I'll speak for you. It's, it's going to be fine. Let, let's go to the village. So they head to the village. And as they get to the village, the chief sees John come in. And when the chief sees John, he points at him and says, you're not Cherokee. And he ordered all the braves to fall on him and kill him on the spot. Well, the brave went forward to speak for him, and they drug the brave away and said, you've got nothing to say. So they take John, and, and by John's own written account, 
he says that the chief took him to the judge and they had a trial for him and they determined he had violated Cherokee law so he's to be executed. They gave him to the executioner. The executioner had a hut where they would keep him until the time of the execution. And the executioner took him over to the hut and said, here's how you'll die. And he showed him a, a bucket full of, of long spikes, wooden spikes that had been soaked in turpentine. He said, we'll drive these spikes into one side of your body, all over your body, and then we'll light them all and that will roast you on that side. He said, well, then roll, the, roll you over and do that on the other side and light the spikes and roast you there. And if you're still alive, we'll throw you in the fire and burn you. And that's your execution. And so John, as a 13-year-old, is terrified. And then he starts thinking about it. He says, but wait a minute. This means I get to go see Jesus. That's great. So in that hut, as he's awaiting execution over the night, he started praying and he had a prayer meeting and he had a praise meeting and he's singing and, and the guard on the outside hears all this conversation going on and breaks in and says, who are you talking to? I'm talking to Jesus. I don't see him. Well, he's here. And so ends up that guard gets converted to Christianity. The guard goes back and gets the executioner and said, you need to come see what's happening here. Executioner gets back and says, who are you talking to? I'm talking to Jesus. He ends up getting converted. So the guard and the executioner go back to the judge, and they bring the judge, and the judge gets converted. So the, the judge, the executioner, and the guard say, we're going to talk to the chief, not let you be executed. They went to the chief, and as John goes into the chief, the chief had a 16-year-old daughter, and the 16-year-old daughter, as John started talking about what's in the Bible and, and what Jesus has said, the 16-year-old girl grabbed the Bible, put it up to her ear and listened to it, and started crying. And the chief looked at John and said, you put a spell on my daughter. You take that spell off now, or I will chop you to pieces in front of my feet. Well, it ends up, the chief gets converted as well. And so the whole tribe ends up getting converted. And so as a result, the chief says to John, he says, the rest of the tribes need to hear what you have to say. He said, but if you go into those tribes, they're going to try to kill you like we tried to kill you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my personal bodyguard. I have 50 braves that, that are with me. I'm going to send my 50 braves with you, and I want you to go through all the different camps and share what you shared with us. And so over the next two years, John went through camp after camp, camp not, not only with the Cherokee, but he also went into the camp of the Katasar and the Hausar and the Creek and all these different tribes over the next two years. At the age of 14, he becomes the first black American successfully to evangelize Native Americans. Now, he goes on, he's part of the American Revolution, and of course, we needed, uh, we needed good relations with Native Americans at, at that time in the American Revolution against the British. So his whole story is told in this book from 1785. This is one of the top two best-selling black narratives in history, and nobody today even knows about it. Don't know who he is or what he did. It's all gone. We, we, why would we know a great story like that? I mean, that, that's a great movie waiting to happen. In the same way you have Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes is the first black man in America to receive a degree of higher education. Now, he was back in the American founding era. He was a pastor. He was a preacher. As a matter of fact, this shows him in, preaching in a church. Um, you see this church that he has here. And if you look at the congregation, they're all white. They sure are. See, this is New England. And he was a famous preacher. White congregations loved him. He, preached, he pastored white congregations in Vermont and Massachusetts and New York, etc. See, so often today when we get black history, what we get is a good dose of South Carolina and Georgia type of black history. We very rarely get what happened in New England black history. But that's part of it too. That's part of the whole story. Everything's got to be told. Every part of it. And so what, what we don't hear is guys like this who was so popular in white communities just, that was just assumed to be part of it. He's also the first black man in America to have a sermon published. We actually own the sermon that he had published. He was a Minuteman in the American Revolution. He served under George Washington. Interestingly, in his churches and in those various states, in his churches on George Washington's birthday, he would preach a sermon about his commander-in-chief, George Washington, with whom he served in the American Revolution. In addition to that, we actually own his Bible that he used in preaching all the sermons. There's so much stuff of Lemuel Haynes that's out there that nobody even knows about today. And by the way, did you notice I'm white? I'm doing black history, exactly, because it's American history. It's not black history, it's not white history, it's everybody's history. This is, this is what every American should know and every American used to know. Let me move you into the, the period of the American Revolution. Let me start you with April of 1775. In April of 1775 is when Paul Revere makes his famous midnight ride. Now, Paul Revere is not the only American who made a famous ride. Other Americans made famous rides as well. One of those Americans who made a famous ride is a guy named Wentworth Cheswell. 
Wentworth Cheswell is a black patriot in New Hampshire, very famous. He made the same type of famous ride across New Hampshire, warning them, alerting the British coming. Uh, Wentworth Cheswell is the first black American elected to office in New Hampshire. He was elected in 1768, a black man in a largely white colony elected. Not only was, and this is one of the documents of his that we own as a judge, not only was he elected, but he was re-elected for the next 49 years. He held eight different political positions in New Hampshire, one of the best known names in New Hampshire. And in addition to all that he did politically, in addition to being such a, a, a noted figure in New Hampshire, um, and again, you know, he, all the political life, all, all the military life as well, he's the historian of New Hampshire. This is a three-volume set of the history of New Hampshire, first edition that came out. We own that. Wentworth Cheswell put together all the documents to tell the history of New Hampshire. This was a noted guy that was no, known all over who's now just disappeared today. But going back to Paul Revere, Paul Revere is making that ride, and he's not just randomly riding warning Americans the British are coming. What has happened is in Boston, there's 1,400 British troops there, and the, the officer has sent 700 British troops out to find Hancock, John Hancock, and to find Sam Adams and hang them. We actually have the order, and it, that order says, bring back to me the bodies of Hancock and Adams. So what, what's happening is Paul Revere is looking for John Hancock. He's looking for Sam Adams to find them and warn them, 700 troops are coming after you right now. Now, where do you go to find those two? Well, you knew exactly where to go. You went to the house of the pastor, the Reverend Jonas Clark, because that's where they stayed. So when word gets to the house of, of Jonas Clark, Hancock and Adams look at Pastor Clark and said, Pastor, are your people ready for this? And Pastor Clark got indignant, backed up, said, of course they are. He said, I've trained them to this very hour. So the next morning is when we have the Battle of Lexington. The Battle of Lexington was when the church of Jonas Clark went out to meet the 700 British. There were 70 men in his church that went out to defend the town from the 700 British. So that morning, the Americans hit the ground. 18 Americans hit the ground in that battle. It included white patriots like John Robbins, black patriots like Prince Estabrook, but they were all out of the same church. Black and whites went to church together. And again, this is not South Carolina and Georgia, which is what we hear about today. This is what was happening in New England and the northern colonies. They went to church together. As a matter of fact, Prince Estabrook goes on to be a noted soldier. Uh, they actually built markers to him back then in the day. We still have markers erected to Prince Estabrook today. Again, a guy who's disappeared from our history. You move from there, moving to July of 1777. I could tell you so many stories that are so cool. This is one of my favorites. July of 1777, what has happened is the British have captured our second command. General Charles Lee has been captured by the British. Now, we need him back because we're a young army. We're made up largely of school te teachers and shopkeepers and farmers and whoever taking on a military army. We need our military leaders. How do you get your second command back when the British have captured him? Well, you need to capture their second command and have a prisoner exchange. Their second command was General Richard Prescott, except this is not going to work out too well because General Prescott is in Rhode Island. He's on an island in the center of the harbor, and the British fleet is around that island, and on the island is a British fort, and he's barricaded in the center of the British fort. You're not going to get the guy out of there, and especially with a bunch of farmers and shopkeepers like we have for soldiers. So what do you do? Well, a plan was, was set forth by General William Barton, or Colonel William Barton. He became a general later in the Revolution, but Colonel William Barton, he says, I've got a plan that might work. It's probably not going to work. Um, this is probably a suicide mission. So he told his, his troops, he said, I'm, I'm not taking anybody unless you volunteer because this will probably get us all killed. But this is the only thing I can think of that, that might work. So what happened was 20 black guys volunteered, 20 white guys volunteered, 40 guys. It's really kind of what we would call the beginning of special forces, maybe the first SEAL team mission that went out. And what happened was the first guy up in the first boat leading it off was a, a black patriot named Jack Sisson. And so what they've got to do is get past the British boats. So what they did was they took the oars on the American boats and they covered the oars with cloth on the end, what they called mufflers. That way when you're rowing through the water, it doesn't slap the water with the oar. It's just kind of swoosh, swoosh. And so about 2 o'clock in the morning, they go rowing right under all the British Navy, go right through all the Navy. Navy doesn't hear them. They're not expecting anything. Now they get to the island, the island where the British fort is. The British soldiers aren't expecting anything, so they, they knock out all the watchmen, get them all knocked out. And now they've got to find where General Prescott is. Well, General Prescott is barricaded inside a room in the center of the fort. It's got a big oak door on it. It's got a big oak post behind it. It's got wrought iron hinges. And they're going, oh, my gosh. 
this is not a good deal. We're going to have to take hammers and beat the door down. By then, it'll wake everybody up, and we're all going to be dead. And at that point, Jack Sisson says, got a solution. His solution is a whole lot. If you remember the movie Princess Bride, remember that? Remember what happened? Just remember this clip? Andre the Giant was Jack Sisson. That's what Jack did. Jack said, you guys back up. He said, he said, I've got this. And so what happened was Jack backed up. He lowered his head and lowered his shoulder and ran right through the door, knocked it off the hinges, broke the oak on the back, broke through the door. General Prescott sat up in bed like, what's going on? Jack went over and knocked him out cold with one punch. Jack picked him up, put him under his arm, walked outside, threw him in the boat, rode back across with the general. So it, it's the coolest story ever. It ought to be a movie, and it may be. I've read two Hollywood scripts that we had input into and in, in, in Jack Sisson. Cool, cool story. But again, Jack Sisson is not known today. Uh, if I take you to 1781, and, and, and this, again, was the beginning of Special Forces, but if I take you to 1781, I can show you young General Marquis de Lafayette. 1781 is toward the end of the American Revolution. General Lafayette, 19-year-old Frenchman who came and, and helped America, very key in our, our victory. And standing beside him is this guy here. Now, I often ask school kids, I said, who is that black guy standing beside Oh, that's his slave. No, not even close, because Marquis de Lafayette was huge anti-slavery. This is a guy named James Armistead. James Armistead, very interestingly, became very good friends with Lafayette. And as they're talking back and forth, Lafayette is lamenting the fact that America really doesn't have any good intelligence on what the British are doing until they do it. If the British have a surprise attack, we don't find out surprise attack until we get attacked, and then we lose all these guys. And so they're talking about intelligence, and James says, well, I, I think I can do something with that. I think I can find out what the British are up to. No, you can't do that. Yeah, I, I can do that. I want to do something for the country. No, you can't do that because that's really dangerous. If they find out you're a spy in the camp. And, and so as they talk, Lafayette says, well, General Washington's ordered me to find intelligence on the British, and I just don't. And James said, I'll do it. I'll do it. So James goes straggling into the British camp, pretending to be a runaway American slave. Oh, I hate the Americans. They're so terrible. They mistreat me. It's so bad. Will you kind British please take me in? And I said, sure. You can stay in the camp. So what James does is he starts faithfully serving the British soldiers in the camp. Starts doing everything he can to be kind to them and help them. And, oh, you need that. Well, I'll polish your shoes. I'll get you some water, whatever it is. The officers are watching this, and the officers say, he shouldn't be doing that for the soldiers. He should be doing that for us. So one of the British generals goes to James Armistead and said, James, you shouldn't be doing that for a soldier. You need to be serving me. So this general invites him to come serve him. The general was a guy named Benedict Arnold, if anybody remembers that name. Remember Benedict Arnold, the traitor, who had been the American general? He switched over and became the British general. He's meeting daily with the commander-in-chief, Lord Cornwallis. And now James is right there with all the generals, hearing all their plans, hearing everything they're doing. And suddenly the surprise attacks on the Americans. When they're attacking, the Americans aren't there anymore. They've all disappeared. And, and so it's, it's not going the way it had been. Well, General Arnold gets sent off on another mission. And so General Cornwallis goes to James and said, James, he said, General Arnold's gone. Would you serve me? So now James has moved up into the commander-in-chief's tent. Sees everything going on. And after he'd been there for a while, one day Cornwallis approached him really serious. Got to him and said, James, looked right at him and said, we have a spy in the British camp. And James is going, oh, no, busted. And, but it turned out it wasn't that way. Cornwallis saying, don't know who the spy is, but suddenly our plans against the Americans aren't working like they were. They're not where they're supposed to be. He says, I don't know who the spy is. I've got to find out who's leaking the information to the Americans. I know you hate the Americans, but would you be willing to go back and spy on the Americans for me? Would, would you go? And say, oh, I hate the Americans. All right, I'll do it for you, General. He becomes the first double spy in American history. He feeds Cornwallis all the bad information, feeds Washington and Lafayette all the good information, results in the victory at the Battle of Yorktown. You see, because of what he told Cornwallis and because of what he told Washington and Lafayette, they found out where Cornwallis was going to be, got there ahead of him, got him trapped out of the peninsula where the British Navy couldn't come help him and, and, and assist him, and they ended up defeating Cornwallis without all the resources he should have had, 
because of the information that came from James Armistead. So James Armistead is credited with shaving months, maybe years off the revolution, saving countless American lives, kind of like the beginning of military intelligence operations. James Armistead, huge hero in the American Revolution. We hear nothing about it. And then we go into years like 1793. I'll read you a newspaper article here. Newspaper, August 13, 1793. It says, in the borough of Eastern Pennsylvania, a free Negro man of the name of Thomas Hercules was on the sixth day of July last, chosen town clerk of that borough by a decided majority of votes. This we mention as proof of the growing liberality of the present age when virtue and worth alone and not mere color or trippery of rank and splendor begin to recommend a man to places of trust and confidence. We elected this guy because he's the best guy. It's a white town electing a black guy. We don't care what color he is. If you can do the job, that's all we care about. You see, this is why John Hancock up in northern states like Massachusetts actually held what were called equality balls because black and white were equal. There never was a time in Massachusetts history when blacks could not vote. I haven't heard that. See, we had elected, black elected officials in largely white areas. We didn't care about Well, we did in the South. But see, this is where we get a view of the American Revolution and American black history from a southern viewpoint, which didn't happen. There's no question what happened in South Carolina and Georgia, but there's no question it's radically different from what happened up in New England, which we never hear about. And that's where so many of the heroes were that we don't hear about. So when you look at it, you're going, okay, now, when I think of the American Revolution, I think of a bunch of white guys. No, no, no. It was white. It was black. There, you would be surprised how many Hispanic heroes there were in the American Revolution, how many ladies were heroes in the American Revolution, what they did. So it's black and white, men and women, it's Hispanics, it's Christian and Jew, all sorts of, Washington had all sorts of foreign generals who came to America to help us win our freedom. It, it, lo it looked like Revelation 7, where gathered around his throne at the last day were people from all tribes, all nations, all languages, all colors, all people. They're gathered there for a common purpose. And that's the way America had been. That's not the way we see America today and the way we teach it today. But again, I own, I own the documents. I own the old textbooks. I know what we used to teach. So w when you look at these, these black heroes, and, and some, you know, I've, I've told you some stories, but there's so many others. When you look at all these black heroes that are there, and the fact that we don't know anything about them today, the question becomes, why? How come we don't know this stuff? Here's the answer. This man was an educator, Woodrow Wilson. In 1902, he came out with a famous history book. It was called The History of the American People, five volumes, big old thick set, five volumes. And he was an educator, and it was critically acclaimed as this fantastic education book he's come out with. And I can't believe how good this book is. And so the, the, the academics really liked it, really praised it. So much so that the next year, in 1903, president of Pr Princeton University offered him the presidency of Princeton. He's the first clergyman to not be a president, to become a president. He's the first non-clergyman to become president of Princeton. So he becomes the president of Princeton University. Within a very few years, they say, man, this guy's so good, he ought to be president of the United States. And so he gets elected president of the United States. He's shoved into notoriety by this five-volume sit, The History of the American People. Problem is, he's a hardcore racist. When he got into the presidency, in the federal government, all the blacks that were working in the federal government then, he fired every one of them except one, so he could have a token black. He also is the man responsible for the revival of the Klan, the second revival of the Klan, we call it. He brought that back. You see, the Klan actually used, Klan sympathizers actually used his volume set to write the script for the first Klan movie, which was The Birth of a Nation. This is a Klan recruiting film. Uh, Woodrow Wilson actually showed this film in the White House. First movie shown in the White House was by Woodrow Wilson, and it was a Klan recruiting film, and it was based on his five-volume history of the American people. So the Klan becomes very favorable. They're at all the theaters where the movie is showing. They're the ones who saved America. Even in his administration, his administration would march openly with Klan down the streets of Washington, D.C., and, and the parades they had, Klan parades. So this is Woodrow Wilson. Now, interesting thing about Woodrow Wilson is when you look at this five-volume set, and you've seen all the history I've shown you, and I've told you all the documents there, and so much more I can give you, he does not have a single black person anywhere in five volumes of history. He doesn't even have Frederick Douglass in there. Now, how can you be alive back at the end of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s, and not mention Frederick Douglass, who was photographed more often than Abraham Lincoln was? How can... How, he doesn't do it. So, since he tells you of no blacks at all, maybe you don't know what a black looks like. So he does give you a picture of a black person, and it's a little bit on the disgusting side. 
That black person looks a whole lot like a, a monkey or a gorilla. Why would he do that? Real easy. It was his educational influence as he was growing up. You see, his education growing up, he was heavily influenced by a guy named Charles Darwin. He talks about that. He talks about the influence of Darwin, how we need to apply Darwin's evolutionary theories to so many aspects of life. We need to apply it to judiciary and policy. This is what progressives do. Progressives think we should be evolving in law and in politics and in government, that we should... It goes back to this. Now, if you don't know the title of Darwin's first book, 1859, it's called The Origin of Species, or at least that's all we say today. Look at the full title book. This is 1859, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races and the Struggle for Life. Wait a minute. Evolution was about favored races? Exactly. Because the next book Darwin wrote was called The Descent of Man. In The Descent of Man, he has 11 occasions where Darwin says, well, the reason people have dark skins is they're not as fully evolved as white people are. So if we can send dark-skinned people back to Africa and let them stay there till their skin turns white, bring them back to America, then we'll have fully evolved people, which is why you get this kind of stupidity. Now, if you want to cancel something, let's cancel Darwin. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to cancel. <laughs> this is where so much of the seeds, of, well, so, so many seeds of so many bad things came out of this era with, with progressives and Darwin and others getting together and, and combining their ideologies, political and, and educational and, and constitutional, et cetera. So all this is going on. So Woodrow Wilson is really kind of a turning point for so much of this. And it's significant that we clearly are historically illiterate about so many of the heroes of our own history. We just don't get presented them today. We have a Woodrow Wilson kind of view of history rather than the previous kind of view. And I have a number of history books in the 1800s, big old thick history books, nothing but the black heroes of the War of 1776, the black heroes of the War of 1812, the black heroes of the Civil War. We had lots of books with all the black heroes. And after Woodrow Wilson, try finding one of them. They're all, all gone because the academics have moved in a different direction. So having said that, we're not only historically literate about the heroes, we're even historically literate now about our own history. Because when you look back to America, we say, well, that's a bunch of racist, slave-owning bigots. No. Of the founding fathers, three-fourths of these guys were anti-slavery, freed slaves, worked abolition societies, started abolition movements. Now, one-fourth of them had wrong views on race, and so that's, that's what we look at and say, that's bad. But three-fourths of them were just the opposite side, moving in an opposite direction, like some of the guys I've already shown you. That, we don't hear about those three. We take the, the few that were slave or that were racist and say they were all like that. Well, not, not so. See, this is why the first region in the world to ban slavery were the northern colonies of America who banned slavery by 1804. By 1804, every northern colony has abandoned slavery. There's not another region in the world that ended slavery before the northern colonies did so in 1804. We're the first part of the world to put a ban. That tells you something, too. See, we have 5,800 years of recorded history. We've only been actively fighting slavery for 200 years? Yeah. 1804, well, actually before that, because the Quakers and others, um, the, the first load of slaves that came to America was in 1619 to Virginia, southern colony. The second load of slaves that came to America was in 1642 in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And the the pilgrims, when that load of slaves arrived, the pilgrims freed all the slaves, imprisoned all the slave owners. They pointed to the verse in Exodus that says, you shall not have man-stealers among you. And that's what slavery and slave trade was. So that's why in Massachusetts, there never was a time when blacks could not vote. There never was a time when they couldn't hold. See, it's so different up north. But what we still get is the southern view. But you got to understand, that whole northern stuff, which started back in the 1600s, by, 17, by, by the time you get to 1804, it had developed into we're not having slavery legally anywhere in this region at all. So that's a big step in the world history. The second thing to be aware of is, first, America is the first nation in the world to put a ban on the slave trade. That was in 1807. So we haven't ended slavery yet because the southern states are not doing that, but we've ended it up north, and now the whole nation has banned the slave trade. And then after we banned the slave trade, most people are unaware that we put a U.S. naval squadron, U.S. federal dollars, put a naval squadron off the coast of Africa to keep any other nation from being able to go in and take slaves. Now, they still got biased, but we stopped a whole lot of ships. As a matter of fact, that went from 1819 to 1861. 
This is one of the American ships stopping ships that are trying to take slaves out of Africa. We tried to stop the slave trade, but Africa is such a big coast, our naval squadron couldn't stop all the ships. But we stopped a lot of them. The British joined with us, by the way, and we had to pull the American squadron out in 1861 because we're involved in the Civil War. We need the Navy back home now to be able to fight, fight the Confederacy. So we've got the Civil War going. But the British, they had been our allies in this, and the British continued. This is actually a, a picture from 1903 where the British is still intercepting slave ships coming out of Africa in 1903. These are slaves that were captured. They're taking them back to Africa to free them. So America, Great Britain, we're kind of world leaders in what we do. And then America became the fourth nation in the world to abolish slavery in 1865. Now, again, we're the, there's 124 nations back then. We're number four in the world. That puts us up on the top elite of the world, and that's only 150 years ago. So this is not an ancient movement that America finally got on board with. Oh my gosh, America was helping lead the movement, and people understand that even today if they're outside of America. For example, if you look at where we are today, there's 193 nations today. I mentioned that. Did you know that today there are 94 nations, we, we meet here this morning, there are 94 nations in the world today that still have not criminalized slavery. It's still legal to own slaves in 94 nations. There are 40 million active slaves in the world today. We have more, slave, more people enslaved today than we had in the entire four centuries of the African slave trade. Africa today has 9.2 million slaves. Um, I happen to help run an organization considered the most active anti-slavery organization in the world at this point in time. Uh, we've taken more than 100,000 out. When the caliphate, when ISIS came in six years ago and set up their territory, in, in the Middle East, they went after, they made slaves of Christians and Yazidis. Anyone that was not Muslim made slaves. We actually have guys who go in physically and militarily fought ISIS to get slaves. Well, two of our guys were killed freeing slaves. One of them got shot 17 times. They keep going back in. Last week we had another rescue mission. We got 12 slaves out. So we're actively free. This is a, this is a deal that's going on right now. And most people are looking at what happened in America 200 years ago instead of what's happening right now. This should be a concern for everybody today. We've got more slavery today than we've had in the history of the world. And again, America is one of the ones fighting this. As a matter of fact, when you look at the world chart, this is done by Australia and Great Britain and others. America is actually ranked as number two in the world in fighting slavery and racism. I mean, that should be something good about America. But see, what happens is we only get South Carolina, Georgia kind of view. We don't see the rest of what's happening. And this is really where the, we're historically literate, not only about our heroes, but even about world history and about American history with what's actually happened. So as a result of this, if you actually teach history the way it's supposed to be taught, you teach the good, the bad, the ugly. We're not teaching the good anymore. We're teaching the bad and the ugly. There's so many good things that happen that should be out there, and we should teach all of it. We should teach the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, there's issues that America needs to deal with today that have got to be faced and addressed, but there's a whole lot that's out there because we don't know what's been done before. We, we have wrong images of so many things. So in saying that, let me just point you to what's happening now with our textbooks. Uh, this is AP U.S. History course. It is taught in all 50 states. Uh, this is the final course you'll take in high school if you're really good in history. This is what gets you college credit. 460,000 students a year take this course. And typical of the way we teach today, when this gets to World War II, it doesn't talk about the 40 million lives that were lost in the European theater with Hitler and Mussolini. It doesn't talk about the 20 million lives that were lost in the Pacific theater with Tojo. It doesn't talk about any of that. As a matter of fact, when it came out, it did not even mention Hitler or the Holocaust, not even mentioned, which is why a month ago, President Trump passed a law called the Never Again Education Act that says schools have to start teaching about the Holocaust. You have to start teaching about the slaughter of the Jews. <laughs> we're not teaching it, but what we did teach in World War II is it pointed out everything America did wrong. You literally go through this history course, and the only nation that did anything wrong in World War II was America. Time out. We ended tyranny in the world. We saved the world in World War II and in World War I. But you don't get that in history. This is what's called deconstruction. In deconstruction, we point out everything that's ever gone wrong, and we don't talk about the things that went right. And so this happens, this, this whole movement is dominating across education. Uh, you get the same thing with critical race theory. Instead of looking at what happened with all of race, we're only going to look at what happened in South Carolina and Georgia, and we're going to find some bad examples, and that's 
No, no, no. There's a whole lot more that's gone right than has gone wrong. We still need to fix what's gone wrong, but we need to know all of it. And so critical race theory focuses on all the bad stuff. It's deconstructionism. Same thing happened back in the 1980s when Howard Zinn came out with his history book. His history book is everything that America's ever done wrong. That's what every kid needs to know. So today, kids can tell you more about what's wrong with America than what's right with America because we don't tell the kind of stories I've shown you. This is the deconstructionism. We even have now college professors. The myth of Americans, it's not a myth. The statistics I gave you are world statistics. That's not a myth. That's actual reality. No, it's all a myth. People believe America's special. She's not special. She needs to be destroyed so she can become special. And so what happens is you get the 1619 Project. 1619 Project started by the New York Times. Uh, BLM has joined that. Antifa has joined that. They're all together now on the 1619 Project. And it's interesting, the 1619 Project has curriculum being used in all 50 states. This is where the 1619 Project starts. The 1619 Project takes as a starting point that America was founded to protect and preserve slavery. Really? That's why we were founded? Ask the Pilgrims if that's what they did. Ask the Puritans. Ask the Quakers. Ask all the northern colonies that they were founded. They weren't founded. They, they did exactly the opposite. Now, if you want to talk about the southern colonies, that's fine. That's only about 15% of the population of America, maybe 25% in some instances, depending on what census you take. That's a smaller part of America. How about all the others? No, we're, we take the assumption that all of America, all 13 colonies, were founded to protect and preserve slavery, and that the American constitutional system is the source of our society's ills, foremost among them is racism. Notice the sequence. If you want to fight racism, you have to fight America's constitutional system, because that's what produced racism. So you need to get rid of that American constitutional system to get rid of racism because that's why America was founded. We were bad at the start. We've been bad all the way through. And so this is, this is why, I mean, we look at founding fathers. They're the guys who gave us the documents. That's why we've got to destroy everything that goes back to that. They, they were all racist, slave-owning bigots, not by a long shot. But if you'll notice the statues are coming down, they often have 1619 painted on them. This is a characteristic of what's happening is we've got to take down stuff, 1619. And by the way, let me also show you, um, I'm going to show you some statues in a moment. But you see here, this is, a, this is a statue that was torn down of an abolitionist. But you see BLM on it right there? Notice the symbol above BLM. Do you recognize the hammer and sickle? That's a communist symbol. Look how often BLM paints the communist symbol beside what it does. Now, if you aren't aware, BLM changed its website about three weeks ago because they've lost 18% of public support over the last month and a half because they are openly Marxist and open. Well, they've got some issues that should be dealt with, but the whole organization itself as an organization has taken a Marxist position, which they themselves make abundant when they tear down stuff. And see, here's the other part of the story that goes with this. This has become more about hating America than it is hating racism. And the way I can demonstrate that to you is by taking you to what's happening. Now, we've been teaching this negativism in American schools for a long time. Jesus said that every student was fully trained will be like his teacher. So we've been teaching how bad America is, and so now we're seeing it break out in ways that just surprise a lot of people. But this goes back to Hosea 8-7 where the Bible says if you sow the wind, if you sow the wind you're going to reap a tornado. We've been planting all these bad seeds and we can't just figure out why it's blowing up into an explosive tornado right now, why it's become so violent. Well, the way we've been educating. And it goes, and so going to the statues, we're told the reason the statues are coming down is because they're finding racism. And the statues that are being torn down are Confederate statues. Now, for the sake of this discussion, we're going to assume that if it's Confederate, it's racist. Now, that's not true, because there were a lot of Confederates in the South who hated racism, who were heavily persecuted for speaking out against racism and slavery, so not every Confederate's racist. But for this discussion, we're going to say if it's a Confederate statue, it's racist. Let's take it down. Okay, if we take that position, which the narrative doesn't fit what I'm telling you, but if we take that position, then tell me why in the world we took down the statue of, of David Farragut, who was a Union admiral who led the Union Navy to defeat the Confederate Navy and the slaveholding nation. So if you're going to say Confederates are slaveholding guys, tell me why you took down the Union admiral. Tell me why you took down the Union commander-in-chief, Ulysses S. Grant, who led the Union forces to defeat the Confederate forces, who became the President of the United States, who passed six civil rights laws, including the first law to punish the Ku Klux Klan, the first anti-Klan law. Why did you tear his statue down? And why did you tear down the statue of the Massachusetts 54th, the movie Glory 20 years ago, Denzel Washington? This is the breakthrough black unit in the Union. This is where 
equality was achieved in the military. I owned the law that was passed by Congress that says black soldiers, white soldiers, treated the same, same pay, same provisions. That's the breakthrough. Why did you take them down? And, and, and why did you take down Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator? He's not a racist. Third statue of Lincoln went down Portland last week. They took statue of Lincoln down as a bad guy. And, but why did you take Frederick Douglass down? If we're going after racist, this doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, exactly. See, we're not only taking down the Confederate racist, we're taking down abolitionists and civil rights leaders. And then you throw in the fact that we keep hearing that Jesus is a white supremacist, and we've got to get rid of... By the way, you are aware that Jesus was not white? Everybody aware of that? Jesus was not a white guy. And yet, look all across the nation, all the statues of Jesus now being beheaded. This is in Florida. This is in Miami. Two weeks ago in El Paso, statue of Jesus beheaded there. We also get Christian missionaries all over the nation now. Junipero Cerro founded California, brought education to Native Americans there, but both of his statues have to be taken down to face uh, the churches he started, the mission churches in California. We have to burn them down because they're this Christian missionary that we've got to oppose. Then you've got what happened in in, uh, Connecticut. There were churches vandalized there, satanic symbols painted all over, 11 churches over the course of weeks, happening all over the nation. I'm just showing you Connecticut. Uh, I can also show you what happened with the St. John's Church in D.C., the Church of the Presidents. The first president to have a term in Washington, D.C. was John Adams. He went to church there. Every president of the United States has gone to church of St. John's, burned it down. They tried to keep the police and firemen from putting out the fire. They got the fire eventually put out. BLM came in the next week to burn the church down again, started church on fire for the second time. Uh, you have what's happening with taking Ten Commandments monuments down across the country. This one's in Montana. You have the burning of Bibles in Portland. What does this have to do with racism? I will point out that the guys who fought racism were the evangelical Christians of the day who led the abolition movement, who did so many things to change it, but were taking down Christian stuff. And by the way, even in Denver, the, the Armenian Genocide Memorial, at the end of World War I, Muslims killed several million Christians in the Armenian Genocide. Mass executions, mass graves. One of the more famous photographs from the Armenian Genocide is how the Muslims would take young Christian girls and crucify them. And we're going to deface that memorial? What has this got to do with racism? So we're also going after Christ and Christianity. In addition to going after Christ and Christianity, explain to me why we went after the World War I memorial in Pittsburgh, or the one World War I memorial in Kansas City, the World War I memorial in Birmingham, or why we went after the World War II memorial in Washington, D.C., the World War II memorial in Indiana, the World War II memorial in Merced, California, the World War II Memorial in Charlotte. Apparently, we don't like the military either. We've got to take the military out. And while we're at it, we've got to take out every founding father. So we've got to take out, uh, in this case, Caesar Rodney from Delaware, who was an anti-slavery founding father who fought slavery, but he's a founding father. He's got to go. We've also got to take out Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin led the National Abolition Movement. We're taking him out. Yeah, he's a founding father. He has to go. We also have to take out Philip Schuler, who helped win the first major victory in the American Revolution, the Battle of Saratoga, brought the French in to help us win the rest of the revolution. Maybe the only battle French ever won. I don't know, but the French helped us win that one. So we got the French assistance there. Uh, we've got uh, Kazimierz Pulaski. Kazimierz Pulaski is a Polish military officer who wanted to help America be free. He came here. George Washington made him a general here. He's one of the many foreign generals that, that we had fighting with us. He was anti-slavery, but we got to take his statue down. Uh, Theodore Thaddeus Kosciuszko. Thaddeus Kosciuszko, another Polish guy. He was a nobleman, very wealthy Polish guy. He came to America to help us fight for our freedom and independence. Uh, he was made a general as well. He took his considerable wealth out of Poland and used it to free slaves in the South. He hated slavery. He fought against slavery. He took that wealth and used it for that purpose. We've got to tear his statue down. We have to tear down the statue of Louis XVI because he's the French king who supported the American Revolution. He, he aided the founding fathers, sent the French Navy and Army. Got to tear him down. We've got to take down the, the tomb of the unknown soldier of the American Revolution. Have to deface it as well. So apparently we don't like founding fathers either. We, we don't seem to like anything about America going on. And that's what you see reflected in the statues, is it really is about hating America. So bringing this thing to a close, what America has a dire need for right now is truth in history, that we tell the good and the bad and the ugly. That's what God did in the Bible. We get the story of David killing Goliath and, and David killing the lion and the bear, which is really good. We also get the story that David may be the lousiest father in the Bible. He never said no to his son Adonijah. His son Amnon raped his daughter. 
Absalom led a revolt against David. David was not a good parent, apparently, from looking at his children, the fruit they produced. And David's also the guy who said, I want Bathsheba slept with her and killed the husband. You've got the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we can learn from all of it. We need all of it to learn from, not just the bad and the ugly. We've got the good. And see, that's what we know is David was a man after God's own heart. David repented. I mean, so many good things about the bad and the ugly, but we're supposed to teach all of that. What we need is, is actually we need a heavy dose of truth. We need all the story, every bit of it, not just what one side wants or what the other side wants. And the reason this is so hard right now is when you look at America, we're polling-wise, three out of five Americans believe there's no absolute moral truth. I can decide what my, well, you may think that, but I disagree with you. But what if what I think is true? Well, I still disagree. No, but we're at the point where that more than half of Americans think they can create their own truth. It's actually four out of five millennials, which is why you see millennials so involved in trying to, to turn things over. They've only been told one side. They don't know the rest of the story, and they have great passion, which is a terrific thing about millennials. If you can get millennials' truth, boy, does it turn them. In the summer times, we do two-week sessions, training sessions for millennials, 18th, millennials and Gen Zers, 18 through 25, and I've never seen such a passionate generation turn so quickly when they get truth. I mean, it is so cool when they, when they get to hold these black history documents and see all the heroes and get the other side of what they don't hear. So cool. But see, even with Christians, it's one out of two Christians that think there's no absolute truth. So what we have a shortage of now is truth. So here's, here's my closing challenge. We need to love the truth more than any time in our history because we hear less of it right now and we don't even know how to distinguish it anymore, which means you have to go find the truth. This is now proactive. You're going to have to go look up the stories I just told you about these great heroes and see if I was telling you the truth or not. How do you know whether I am? Just because I claim to own the documents doesn't mean I'm telling you the truth. Go look the stories up. You may be shocked to find out there's a whole lot more back there than what I told you. See, now we're going to have to put every, we, We've relied on the schools to teach us. We've relied on the textbooks to teach us. We've relied on the media to tell us. We've relied on our friends. Can't do that anymore. You're going to have to go find it on your own. Truth is no longer just sitting out there waiting to be picked off. You have to go dig for it because it's been buried. And then once you do that, you're going to have to defend it. We saw polling a month ago that 77% of Christians are afraid to share what they believe for fear of being attacked. You can't go silent just because you might get attacked. But you know, in Revelation, in Revelation 21, verse 8, it talks about those who will be cast in the lake of fire. you got the adulterers and the perjurers and the immoral and the murderers. The first thing on the list is cowards will be tossed in the lake of fire. God expects us to have a backbone, and it's time for the church to get a backbone. And so, it, you, can't go, you can't go silent on truth. You've got to defend the truth. So, with truth, we've got to love it. We have to take the effort to find it. And then once we do, we have to be willing to defend it. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share.